I had a CEO come to me and say, accountability is one of our core values. I said, great, it's, it's wonderful. What happens if somebody isn't accountable? And he, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, what are the consequences? If, if you said accountability is a core value, what are the consequences if people don't behave in an accountable way? Well, I guess there really aren't any. Okay. You don't have accountability as a core value. If there are no consequences, and it doesn't mean firing people, although sometimes that happens, like if there are no consequences to accountability, then you don't have accountability. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This is Luke Shermer from the Managing Remote Teams podcast. I'm the author of the book Aligned Remotely. Today's guest is a really special guest whose body of work I found really helpful as a practitioner in the context of delegation and accountability. So usually this topic is just full of platitudes and hot air when you read stuff online or even in lots of books, but Jonathan has clearly thought deeply on the topic and he's come up with frameworks that I personally find quite empowering to to go and solve real world issues as you face them, as you'll hear on this episode. So Jonathan is a really interesting character. Originally, he nearly suffered a burnout as a New York lawyer. He reinvented himself as a coach and moved on to the Emith company. He then later wrote a book called Good Authority about delegation and accountability which is, as I was saying before, a topic which leaders often talk about despite struggling with it behind closed doors. And then ultimately, he used that as the basis for creating Refound.com, which helps companies with leadership challenges. So in this episode, you'll learn how to hold people accountable in a respectful way without feeling like you've been taken for a ride, what accountability really is and what it means for you as a leader, and also we talk with Jonathan about how lockdown has changed how leaders hold their teams accountable under these somewhat strange times over the last year. And without further ado, here's the show. Jonathan Raymond, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be on. And so can you say a few words about how you got into the topic of accountability yeah. and delegation? Fairly simply, uh, realizing that I was a lousy CEO when it came to delegation and accountability and feedback and coaching. And I was pretty good at the vision and strategy and, okay, where do we want to be? And what does it look like? And thinking about product and things like that. Uh, and I thought I was okay at the delegation and feedback and accountability, and, and I wasn't. And so I realized back in, this was like 2013, 2014, seven, eight years ago, that I needed to change something, something substantial about my approach to leading and managing teams. And I also saw my managers who were mostly around my age, a little bit younger at the time, like mostly in their thirties, they were really struggling. And people, this was pre, way pre-pandemic, pre all the crazy things that are happening in our world right now. And people were really struggling with how, creating a space for their teams to perform at a high level based on the company goals or the team goals and be really human 
and give people the development that they were looking for, the autonomy they were looking for. That's where I started. We'll get into where I ended up. Yeah, I just became really passionate about this topic of conversations and where every organization that I was a part of, whether it was part organizations that I was in a leadership role in or where I, that I was consulting or coaching to, that everybody seemed to be struggling with this. And I was like, okay, there's got to be a better way. So that's where I started. Yeah, that's how I discovered the book too. I was looking for anything around this because it just felt like I, I wasn't doing very well with this particular thing. So in terms of the the process of getting into it, what were the first challenges that you overcame as you started getting into this area? The first was really a mindset that I, I talked about a lot in Good Authority, which was like, like most people, I, I grew up in a education system, family system, cultural system that rewarded and incentivized me based on my individual contributions. So I became really good at my individual contributions and knocking off the things in my inbox and moving things forward that were that seemed important to me. And I started to shift that perspective and I started to see that was not my highest value anymore as a team leader. While it was my highest value as an individual contributor, that that mindset of solving problems and fixing things had become a liability. And all of a sudden I had a team of people, whether it was eight people, 20 people, hundred people surrounding me in some sort of way. The more that I used that muscle that I, re that I really knew, the worse things got. So the more mm -hmm. I was the one who was the, the fixer of problems and the solver of things, the less the team performed. And the less that I did that, the more that I said, I don't know, I've got an idea for how to do that, but how would you do that? Or, hey, I've got some ideas for how we might do this. Of course, I've got some ideas, but I don't want to put my ideas out there first because the tendency will be to go with my ideas and they may not be the best ones. If we want to go deep pretty soon in our conversation here, it's really about identity. It's really about who do I think I am and, what do, and, and how do I think I add value in the world? And as an individual contributor, we think rightly that we add value through our individual contribution. And when we're called into a position of leadership, at least in, in my view, and I think this is a widely shared view these days, more so, is that we have to change that self-value. We have to say, hey, wait a second, my self-value is about empowering others and is about lifting up others and creating the conditions for other people to go to places that they've yet to go. I'm good at taking myself to places that I've yet to go, but my job is to get other people to go to places where they've yet to go. And I had a, a CEO of a you know Fortune 500 company recently say to me something that he never would have said to me a year ago, where he said, Jonathan, what I realized is that it's my job to create the emotional conditions for high performance. And I was like, wow, okay, my job is done here. That's the kind of stuff you don't hear. It takes a while. So that's the, the it's, it's mindset. The shift from individual contributor to team leader, 80% of it is mindset. There's tactics we'll get into, the accountability dial, and we'll talk about delegation, There's, but it's about a mindset shift and that's the hardest part. In terms of accountability, let's start there. What is it really when it's working well? Here's what it's not, or it's not only. A lot of people say accountability is like doing what I said I was going to do. Okay, fine. That's fine. But that's table stakes, right? And most people don't even do that, and especially in big companies. They suffer from a lot of people not doing the things that they were going to do. But to me, accountability is about the way we go about things. It's not just about the tasks in your inbox, but it's the way you go about it. Did you communicate 
in an effective way? Did you collaborate across the team? Did you give people fair warning around changes? Did you acknowledge when you messed something up and you didn't just say, oops, you said, oops, that was on me. And because it was on me, here's how I'm going to fix it to make it easier for you. Nobody does that in our world. That's accountability. Accountability is I screwed up. I made things harder for you. I made your project go slower. I messed something up for you. Saying I'm sorry is worthless. It's better than nothing. But accountability is going to saying, hey, of course, say, hey, sorry about that. And I'm going to take it upon me because I'm the one who took the action that resulted in harm in some way. I'm going to take the next action, which is I'm going to fix it. I'm going to undo. I'm going to, I'm using the word damage, even though it's a bit extreme, but I'm going to proactively undo the damage or the harm that I did. That's accountability. That's where, that's the top of the mountain, what we're going for and what we coach leaders and executives on. And the more, and the higher you are up in the org chart, the more meaningful it is when you do accountability like that. And the more obvious it is when you don't, and the more harmful it is when you don't, because everybody goes, this culture talks about accountability. We talk about ownership. We talk about living our values, but they don't do it. The work that I do is oftentimes with senior leaders, but or but we're working organizationally. And that's, so to me, accountability is about how we show up in our worlds. How do you move from accountability being this code word for beating people over the head with a bat <laughs> to, to the type of accountability that you described? Well, organizationally, what we do is we, we ask a lot of questions. We're paying to be asked that way. So when we go into an organization, we're typically not working with one person. We're working with a, like a team or a division and oftentimes a, large, a whole company. And we ask a lot of questions of people like, hey, so if I use the word accountability, what does that mean to you? What does that mean in this organization? And people have a, a wide variety of answers. And then we ask them, we say, what, what should it mean? It should mean X, Y, and Z. It should mean if somebody's going to delay a project that they should come across the hall, real or virtual. We let the organization define what accountability should be. And then, and what oftentimes we'll ask questions like, okay, so let's assume the level of accountability in the organization. Like, well, let me say it this way. I had a CEO come to me and say, accountability is one of our core values. I said, great, it's, it's wonderful. What happens if somebody isn't accountable? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, what are the consequences? If you said accountability is a core value, what are the consequences if people don't behave in an accountable way? Well, I guess there really aren't any. Okay. You don't have accountability as a core value. If there are no consequences, and it doesn't mean firing people, although sometimes that happens, like if there are no consequences to accountability, then you don't have accountability. So we ask a lot of questions around what does accountability mean? And different people have different uh, assumptions. And it's if we use the word excellence, if we ask 10 people, they're going to have 10 different definitions. So we ask a lot of people uh, in the organization, what does it mean? What should it mean? Uh, what would it look like if accountability was operating at a really high level in this organization? Okay, we would be doing this and this. Okay, does everybody agree that those are good things? Yeah, that would be awesome. Okay, so now we move it out of the realm of, of a negative and something people don't want to something that people do want because it's attached to an outcome that they care about. Let's move on to delegation. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think that, that's actually the thing that probably helped me the most. Why do people struggle with delegation so much? Especially in, in larger companies and where there's you no know, layers of leaders and managers, we're afraid of the of poor work coming back on us or it not happening fast. And like we oftentimes have a manager or a leader who's in some form or another under a lot of pressure 
breathing down our neck about our results. We talked about the conditions for a second a few minutes ago. The conditions are ripe for me to not delegate or to not delegate fully. I'll give the easy stuff. I'll give the stuff that has like a list of one to 10, go do these things. But it's but if the conditions are ripe for me to hold back the parts that are that involve a little more creativity, that involve more context, that involve a bit more risk. The inertia is in favor of me holding back versus letting go. So you have to proactively work against that. That's the reason why it's so hard is because we believe, even if it kills us, if you look at the inner world of most managers and leaders, you'll see a lot of burnout and a lot of overwhelm. We believe that the only way that we're going to survive and get promoted is by doing it ourselves getting it done, making sure, like we're a constant, this constant state of making sure, polishing, finishing, all of that kind of stuff, because we were afraid. And as a parallel to that, we don't know how to do it any other way. So what would be the alternative? If I don't do that, if I let go, I know what's going to happen. It's going to be a disaster. This person's going to be sloppy. This person's going to be late. This person's going to be blah, blah, blah. This person's going to do an okay job, but I'm going to have to redo it anyway. We have this whole sort of, in the legal world, we say, they say the parade of horribles, right? This parade of horribles that goes through our mind of all the things that are going to happen if we genuinely, truly delegate. So we don't do it because we don't have an alternative. Or how would I do that in a way that doesn't necessarily guarantee me that doesn't happen, but reduces the risk substantially? And without that, I'm not going to delegate. And that's what the accountability dial and a lot of the other tools in the book are for. How do we mitigate the risk? How do we create moments where we can delegate and give the people feedback in real time of what happens when we do? What did they get right? What did they get wrong? How do they improve? So that we can improve our own abilities to delegate and the flexibility in our system. So the difficult thing to delegate is the thing that's big and hairy and uncertain and unknown, yeah. which especially nowadays, there's a lot of that. Yes, there's a lot of that. <laughs> How do you start uh, do you need to break it down into specific hmm. tasks? Do you need people to do it for you? Suggest how they would do it? I'll give you one, exa start. one example. A lot of managers would benefit from thinking a little bit more like a mentor-apprentice type of relationship. I think people do this in engineering to some degree. If I want someone on my team to be able to do something well, me telling them to do it well isn't going to work most of the time. Me explaining to them what looks like it might have a little bit of effect, but nothing is going to have the same effect as me showing them how I do it step-by-step. Step. What are the micro moments? What are the, the, the questions that I'm asking of myself as I'm going through a piece of work? Because they don't know what those questions are. So as a leader who's, who grows through the ranks, who gets promoted, what people don't understand is the reason why you're promoted, nobody ever talks about this, the reason why you're promoted is because you've demonstrated to somebody that you understand context. It's that simple. You understand the context of the work. And so they're willing to give you more of it because you understand the little bit of the why and you show up to it the right way. But then we bring a, people, people, a team of people around us and we don't delegate, we delegate the work, but we forget to delegate the context. And so the way to delegate the context is to go, so let's use sales, for example. So if I, rather than me, telling a salesperson a hundred times how to do a good sales call. I want to go through one minute of a sales call that I did and stop the tape a hundred times and say, okay, right there. Why do you think I asked that question? Oh, shit, I don't know. 
And then I want to get them thinking about why do I do the things that I do relative to this really important task? They're going to learn way faster. And what managers think to us, they say, oh, I don't have time to do that. And it's nuts because you spend so much time now managing around the absence of that. So if you would just say, hey, look, I'm going to spend five minutes a day this week in a spirit of learning where I'm going to sit down with one person on my team on Monday and for five minutes, I'm going to really teach them how to do something that I know how to do that I suspect they don't know how to do or they don't know how to do it the way I know how to do it. That's how you start to break it down. There, there are other things we can talk about as well. But what I've seen over and over again, I'll give you another related example where a manager, and she's a very senior leader, but in a very large company, and she's struggling with delegation. Right? And she said, I keep going to these meetings. I keep going to these regional meetings because blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm afraid something bad will happen, whatever. And I said, okay, great. So I said, Catherine, what are the questions that you ask yourself as you're sitting in on those meetings? And she thought, oh, I don't know. I just, I just do it. Okay, I bet if you take, let's take five minutes right now and I want you to write down what are the five most important questions that you're asking yourself as you're listening to this other team share this information. She did it in 30 seconds. Once I asked her the question, she knew exactly what the things were. That, and I said, okay, great. Now write that in an email and send that to your direct reports and say, hey, here are the questions that I ask myself when I go to these meetings. These are the questions that I want you to ask with whatever other questions you think are important. I'm not going to those meetings anymore. And that's what she did. And she hasn't been since. It's been six months. She doesn't go to those meetings anymore because she got it out of her head. She got the context out of her head onto a piece of paper, into it, well, an email, and sent it to some people, explained why those things were important, and then let them be smart. Let them go do... And then they made it better because there's a bunch of questions she wasn't thinking of because she's operating at a different level. Hope that's helpful. Let's go into context a little more because <laughs> this is something that I've been thinking about lately. It's this thing that see is there, but what is it exactly in, in an organization, for example? Think about it this way. One of the things that leaders often struggle with, myself included, all leaders struggle with this in different ways, is that we say a thing and we don't understand why our team, even though we said the thing, and maybe we even said the thing three times, we don't understand why our team doesn't understand the thing that we said in the way that we said it. We don't understand it. It's reasonable why we don't understand it. And the reason why is they lack context. So what does that mean? They weren't in the 50 meetings prior to that moment where people hashed out all the nuances and debated the ideas. They didn't marinate with that content. They didn't work on them in all of these passive ways over a period of time leading up to that moment. When we said the thing, we have all of this context for what's behind it and why it matters and how it's different than this other thing that we could have said but we didn't say and how you know, why, it's, why it has to happen on this time scale. But we spent a bunch of time arriving at that statement and then we make that statement and we think someone else, another human being is going to understand it in the way we understand it. It's crazy. So, so it doesn't work. So that's one form of all of that. It's all the nuance, all the debate, all the critical thinking or lack of critical thinking, all the pressure, all the stress, all the emotion. Maybe there was a heated conversation about why that was so important. And then somebody shows up on a team, a couple layers in the organization and says, hey, everybody, we're doing this now. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? I thought, why is that important? Like, 
Yesterday, you said this was important. And all the context got lost in that conversation, right? All the why, all the, why does it matter? Who does it matter to? Why does it matter more than this other thing? All of that stuff gets lost. And then we wonder, why doesn't the team perform at a really high level? In the context of people, especially junior people who are very good, who join, mm -hmm. and then I want them to be more involved, for example. Mm -hmm. And then if you give them too much context, they're practically doing my job, which obviously isn't good for them or good for me either in right. terms of it's, it's a waste of their time. And yeah, on the other hand, I want them to have enough context so that they bring their full selves to the work. So it isn't this yes. kind of thing where I just go and tell them what to do and give them to-do lists. How do you give enough context without overwhelming people to, to basically go and do their job? For me, it's a line item that should be in your one-on-ones that's sometimes spoken about and sometimes isn't, depending upon the week or the month. Click on that a little bit. Exactly as you said, too much context, not helpful, can be debilitating, not useful, too little context. So it should be a conversation. It should be from the moment somebody is like starting with me. So I have a new guy on my team that I'm going through this right now. And we're trying to figure out that balance of like how much context is enough, how much is debilitating where he's swimming and how much of it is not enough. And so we talk about that, right? So I, rather than me trying to figure out exactly how much context he needs, it's a regular conversation or a one-on-ones. It's like, hey, do you feel like you have enough context for this? Some things he surprised me. He was like, oh yeah, I totally get it. I talked with Sarah and blah, blah, blah. I totally get it. And other things he's like, I don't really know. Can you say a little bit more? And so that's a feature, a line item in our one-on-ones is context maintenance, so to speak. <laughs> uh, where where we're we're in conversation about that, and I'm going to give him feedback, which with the accountability dial, which maybe we'll talk about in a couple minutes. I'm going to give him feedback when I see him operating either without enough context or being debilitated by too much context, and that's the purpose of the accountability dial and the feedback methodology is to be able to say this thing right now. I feel like we're spinning our wheels on the strategy piece of it. And I want us to live in a tighter box there. So can you think about that? And how would we move that forward if we just said, hey, we're going we're gonna to lock in. This is what we know. We know that it's imperfect, but this is what we know. How do we move it forward over the next 30 days, 60 days? So I'm going to give my feedback at, the, at that level as well so that he can understand from my perspective, is he operating at the right level of context? Some people use the, like, the right altitude. Is he doing the work with the right level of altitude? So I think it's an ongoing conversation. And people so, will tell you, right? They will, if you do a survey and they say, well, I don't like, if you do a survey in whatever tool you use and people say, I don't understand my job. I don't understand what I do here. It's the most frustrating thing for like HR leaders and CEOs. How do people not understand? Like we tell them we, you know, we do all these things, right? Because they're lacking context, right? And so they need managers to uh, help them understand why their role matters and what's important about it. And also to remove things that are not important. That's the fatal flaw of most managers and leaders. They don't declutter mm. uh, the inboxes of their teams in an effective way. And so people are like, you never took those other things away. So I guess I have 27 priorities. Yeah. I'll try to work on all of them. Yeah, yeah. So accountability dial. What What is it? I realized <laughs> painfully, not only as a CEO, but as a manager, when I was giving feedback that I thought was reasonable and was reasonably toned and was reasonably challenging, I thought 
that the way that I was doing that was okay. And I realized, this is back in that same period, seven, eight years ago, that what I thought was reasonable and properly toned and reasonably challenging was way too heavy handed, was way too intense, was bringing way too much authority for people to be able to hear. And so as a result, what I was getting was defensiveness, victimhood, people blaming other people, blaming other systems, people shutting down. And I didn't understand. I was like, how is this happening? Like, all I said was like, and what I didn't realize was that the, by the nature of my position in the organization, and I can be an intense guy, but it wasn't just that, the combination of my position and my own personal intensity was causing people to shut down. So I decided to create a better way for myself. Refound didn't exist. The book didn't exist. I was just working as a leader in a team, senior manager, but I was working in it on, a, on a bigger team. And I started to, to slow down and I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bite-size this. Instead of giving my feedback, I'm going to break it down into five components and see what that does. And what ended up being the accountability dials, these five stages, mention, invitation, conversation, boundary, and limit, which we talk about extensively. And we'll share some links for some people to check out some things about this. Is I said, okay, I'm just going to start with a mention and see what happens. I'm just going to say, to the effect of, hey, I noticed in this morning's stand-up, I noticed this. I don't know what to make of it, but I noticed it. And then I'm just going to shut up. And I wasn't going to make a theory, or uh, maybe I had a theory, but I wasn't going to out my theory or a conclusion or make a judgment or dictate an action. I wasn't going to do any of those things. And what I found was by just starting with the mention, I started to spark self-reflection. I started to spark curiosity in people. I started to spark people's taking on the thing that I saw as their own and taking it from me, which is what I wanted because I saw something. I didn't know what to make of it. I just knew it wasn't good, hmm. but I don't have the context that they have about the customer ticket or the product sprint. I didn't have that context. I just knew something was off. And so what, what evolved from that was these five stages where the mention is just the simple, hey, I noticed this. I'm not making a grand conclusion. Tell me what you think of this. And that was the key that unlocked it. And then we went to the invitation, which was, hey, I noticed a couple of things. I noticed a pattern. I don't, I have a theory about why that's the case, but I'm not sure that it's being addressed in a compelling enough way. And then we went to the conversation to talk about the impact that it was having. And then we went to the boundary to talk about what, what happens if this doesn't get fixed. And then we went to the limit when we said, okay, we're, we've done all the coaching that we can do. And what I found was when I started to do this for myself, and then I started to teach people this seven, eight years ago, that it unlocked something really magical on a team where people felt like they had space to work on themselves without feeling undue pressure or feeling under the gun to make dramatic behavioral change because people are not capable of making dramatic behavioral change in short periods of time. It doesn't work that way. Hmm. Behavioral change takes time. So the feedback cycle, the accountability dial is honoring the, the true nature of behavioral change is we need information. We need information that comes from a place of curiosity. We need pressure. We need someone who, who, keeps their attention on the thing that they want us to change, doesn't just go away, doesn't say it once and then forget about it forever. Every teenager knows how to work their parents 
right? If you say the thing once and then you forget about it, well, yeah, (laughs) they learn, okay, all I have to do is duck for a minute. The storm will pass. I don't have to change. So there's a bunch of ingredients for how to facilitate behavioral change that we've honored with the accountability doll. And that's the, the primary tool that we teach, not just for managers with their direct reports, but a lot of times with peer-to-peer, co-managers, co-leaders, co-executives in an organization. And we also teach it for people how to give feedback up. So it's a framework for how to start and maintain a conversation in a way that doesn't create defensiveness and people shutting down and people feeling like you don't understand why is that coming out of left field? Because it has consistency and it has care. Yeah, I think uh, the bit that it helped me the most with was that it allowed me to say things uh, that I was noticing without without feeling like I'm going to be cutting someone <laughs> cutting yes. someone under the legs or something that it yes exactly in my particular case I had certain situations that I I wanted to do something about it but at the same time I didn't really have a good structure this way of looking at it from the point of view of a coaching conversation helped a lot I think in terms of being able to actually raise issues but in a way that mm-hmm. was exploratory and collaborative there's something you said just before, which which is I, I can't impress upon enough. It's so important, is that we what we don't realize is how easy it is to undermine people. It's so easy to undermine and disempower and cut the legs out from somebody, and it's so difficult to recover once you've done that. And that's if there's one thing that people get from the book is exactly what you described. How do I say what I see? How do I talk about what I see in a way that doesn't do that? Or at least minimizes the likelihood. If you've got somebody on your team who's just gets triggered at anything and like, there's nothing you can do. You're gonna have to deal with that in another way. But how do we operate as leaders and managers? And especially because people have so much going on outside of work. Our world is so screwed up in so many ways. Depending upon where you live, the version of the screwed up is different. But people have a lot going on and it's so easy even before all that, to undermine and disempower people. So we need a way to talk about what's real, to be honest, to be truthful, but in a way that doesn't undermine people and take the legs out from them before they've had an opportunity to get better. We talked about the beginning, the noticing and the deepening. What about when you're getting towards the end, when you do realize that someone just isn't interested or capable to do what you want or what the organization needs? How does this mindset help them and you? So a couple of things which are, which I found really interesting, what the, what the data has shown over time is that when you use the accountability dial, and again, the mindset that we talked about at the beginning, not the accountability dial as a weapon, but as a coaching tool, when you do that, you will find that you have far less of a need to have those difficult boundary termination conversations because one of two things will happen. People will receive the feedback earlier and make the changes that you want, or they will opt out. And this, ha- and organizations that are using the accountability out, what happens is that people, when they're getting feedback, where they can't hide, where how they're behaving, how they're showing up, they're not being collaborative, they're not doing the things that they said they were gonna do. When they start to get feedback about that, people go, you know what, I don't wanna be here anymore. I don't like, that's not a good feeling, right? Now, some people will keep going, right? Because some people will push through for for one reason or another. But so those two things, that knocks a lot of people off. Some people will change. That's the the ideal outcome. And some people will leave. Mm -hmm. And then you have this third group of people who won't change or won't change fast enough 
or can't, right? Maybe that's just, it's just not, they don't, there's a capability issue. There's not, there's a talent gap. It's fine. It happens. Is there, it starts with framing that up to be able to, and this is a question that I will often ask leaders. I'll say, okay, give me a behavior. I'll ask you. So Luke, give me a behavior. It doesn't have to be a current person on your team, but someone in the past that was behaving in a way or showing up in a way that wasn't what you needed from them at the time. What were they doing that wasn't good or effective or good enough? What was the behavior? Sure. So it was a developer who would finish a piece of work and give it directly to the, the quality assurance team without checking that what he just did actually works. Okay, great. So I'm going to give this person the ability to stay on your team doing exactly that thing, not following the process that you need, handing it directly over instead of that intermediary step. And they're going to do it exactly that way for the next 10 years and stay on your team. How do you feel about that? Not great. <laughs> okay. How about and, and, five and, years? And, 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 and more importantly, not just me, I think other people that, that we're both working with also. So five years, you want to keep them for five years? There was a pattern. I was escalating it. <laughs> and yep. Yep. yeah, at a certain point, I realized that this, yeah, this isn't working. So what, where we get to with that little exercise is we should note in large organizations, especially, but even in smaller ones, Sometimes what I'm about to describe isn't as clean a process. Like you, you have HR, there's a lot of messiness to this. But to frame up that conversation, what I've found is that with a behavior like the one that you're describing, there's a timeline that you have in your head by which that behavior needs to change. And it is almost never longer than 90 days. Mm -hmm. It's not a day. You, there's some willingness. Hey, if I saw some progress... If I saw some willingness, if I saw a little bit of movement, I would be willing to let this play out for a little bit longer. So it's not a day, but it's not 90 days. And somewhere in there is your boundary in your head of how much longer you're willing to deal with this in its current state. The only problem is we haven't told the person that. So the boundary, which is stage four in the accountability dial, is to have that conversation. Hey, so we've been, and this is the key, We've made some mentions about it. We've been in this conversation. We've been talking about the impact. You've been doing your part to try to work on this a little bit. But for whatever reason, where, where I think we are is it's not changing or it's not changing enough or fast enough. That's how I'm seeing it. And I want to talk about what are we going to do about that, right? Now, that might happen in 90 days for a certain type of behavior. Probably not. Most of the time, it should happen pretty soon, right? Like within a couple of weeks or 30 days or can't let a lot of time go by yeah. before we have that, what the conversation is and then the boundary. And once, it, once you've used the first steps of the accountability doll and you're coming from, from a coaching mindset, that's why I'm a, being a bit of a broken record, what you'll find is that conversation is a lot easier to have. And then you're in, this, you're in a room, maybe it's a Zoom room, but you're in a room with a person and you say, hey, here's how I'm seeing it. How are you seeing it? Uh, and then what you will get is people feel like, yeah. I know what you mean. I'm really struggling because of these and these things and I've really tried and whatever is okay. So let's put a frame around this. What would a boundary look like? What would a consequence look like for you that would help you make this change? I get that it's hard. I get that you've been operating a certain way for your whole career or one year or whatever. I get that the last manager didn't make a big issue of this and I get all of those things. What's an agreement that you and I can make so that you can change this behavior in a way that's positive, that feels like a meaningful change for you, and that I also get what I need. 
from your from performance? What would that look like? Can you take, can you, my, my direct report, I'd love for you to sleep on that. Let's stop our one-on-one -on -one or let's finish our one-on-one -on -one today. We'll talk about some other stuff and let's revisit that next week. And I'd love for you to do some thinking. I don't wanna be the one to say this and this doesn't happen and blah, blah, blah. That's not how I wanna lead this team. I would rather you come and say, hey, I get it, Luke. I get it, Jonathan. I understand why you're frustrated. I understand what the problem is. Here's my plan for how I'm going to change it. What do you think? That's the outcome that we want, mm -hmm. right? We want them to author, like people, you'll hear people say, smart people say, well, the employee should author the one-on-one. -on -one. Great. Well, how often does that actually happen? Very rarely, except mm -hmm. in the, you know, a supremely motivated person. So this is one of the ways that you get the, you have to get you have the people on your team to be authoring their own destiny by asking them questions. Hey, rather than me come up with the plan, how about you come up with a plan? I'll do this. I'll give you feedback. I'll, we'll talk about it. It's not, it doesn't have to be perfect. But you come back with the first draft. That's what the boundary conversation uh, should feel like. Yeah, this tool was super useful in the context of, of remote teams. I'm wondering how you, your clients, people around you, how they've fared now that everything has moved to remote only yep. with the benefit of these tools or, as, or if they're learning them, let's say, during the lockdown period. What, yep. uh, what they're getting out of it. I've noticed two primary themes that have emerged. So when we, we used to do everything in person, almost everything in person. And then when COVID hit and whatever it was, the last February, March, and we and I was like, okay, let's, what are we going to do now? We shifted the entire business to online as we had to. What I found was two things happened at the same time was managers and leaders who were already under an enormous pressure, already under an enormous strain that went like 10x where the level of burden, emotional and mental space that managers and leaders were being asked to hold, TEDx, off the charts. And now we don't have the social benefits of physical space. For a lot of teams were remote already, but for teams that were in person that had gone to remote, it was really difficult. The first theme was things got way harder. And the other thing that I found was people almost defaulted into becoming more of a coach out of necessity hmm. was they ended up in so many more conversations that were the types of conversations that I was trying to get them to have in 2018 and in 2019. <laughs> but in 2020, they started doing it out of necessity. And they started end up doing a little bit of therapy, right? A little bit of life coaching, a little bit of ministry in some cases. <laughs> they ended up doing a lot of the things that people like me have been telling people that they needed to do for a long time people started doing this and they started using the accountability dial to frame and create boundaries and structure around that conversation. Because once you open that door, it's really easy to go too far. It's really easy to find yourself making excuses for people, being too understanding, being too empathic. And then it comes back on you because you're not delivering the results that you need to deliver as a manager. So that was, so things got way harder, theme one, and the accountability dial really helped people create boundaries around those conversations. I'm a coach, to my, that's my job. My job is to facilitate the growth of my team, but it's not my job to be their therapist. It's not my job to be their marriage counselor. It's not my job to be their relocation specialist. Those are not my jobs, but I need a way to talk about that that doesn't undermine the good relationship stuff that I'm building. Where can people find out more? We've got some links. Uh, I, I'm assuming it'll be refound.com slash launch tomorrow. If it's not, we'll fix it in the show notes, I'm sure. More like refound.com slash managing remote teams. That has a video course on the accountability dial that people can check out. 
uh, a link to good authority, which you can get everywhere, of course, Amazon, but other places too. And uh, a one-on-one -on -one meeting guide we've got up there on the page, uh, ways to get in touch with us. So there's a bunch of free stuff. There's some other stuff in there too for people to check it out and learn more about uh, this approach. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. So as you probably heard from the interview, I really enjoyed speaking with Jonathan. And I think this way uh, of thinking about the accountability dial that he had about it as an approach for changing human behavior is a really great insight. So I was aware of it before, but I think this idea of having a way of getting along with others while also communicating your own needs and expectations is really helpful and in particular as he says during the interview if you can use it to help prevent things from going completely off the rails it's even more so a valuable tool in the toolbox and a way of thinking about human relationships even.